Take your Bible and open to uh, the Old Testament, to the book of Psalms. Psalm 42 is where we're going to find ourselves this evening. Psalm 42. <clears throat> we, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, we have finished our uh, study in Romans chapter 8. If you've been here uh, with us in the evenings, we've been in that chapter. We were in that chapter for quite some time. And uh, we're going to take a little break from that uh, book for a while. And if you're new uh, to the congregation, I thought I should tell you that that current study in the book of Romans in the evenings has been somewhat of a unique series uh, because it's way out of order uh, the way I've been teaching it. Originally, I started a series in Romans. I, I taught Romans when I first came here, but then I, and I've been here for quite a long time now, but I started another series through Romans, and I did so in preparation for a trip I was going to take uh, a couple of years ago to Russia to teach. And my task when I got to Russia was to teach the second half of the book. And so what I did has been so long since we were in it, so long since I've been in it, I thought i got to work my way through the material as fast as I can to get to the second half. And uh, then rather than do a detailed study, you laugh. Okay, who's that? Don't raise your hand now. <laughs> my goodness. I did. I did actually pull it off for a while <laughs> until I got to Chapter 5. Okay, I actually pulled off a chapter in the evening or pretty close to it. Uh, but then I got about chapter 5, realized my time was running out, so I kind of skipped over 5, 6, 7, and 8. I jumped into 9 and went 9 through 11, and then I went off to my trip. And so when I came back, I started in chapter 5, and that's what we've been doing. So if you come in, I think some of you have been here for about a year, and that's when I started Romans 8. So 5, 6, and 7 happened before Romans 8, but we've been working through all that material ever since I got back from that trip a couple years ago. And so when we return... Lord willing to the, the book of Romans, probably sometime after the new of the year, new year, I'm probably going to jump over 9, 10, and 11 since I taught through that. Maybe I'll do an overview. I don't know. I haven't got there yet. But I want to pick it up in 12, uh, chapter 12 and then finish that. Uh, Lord willing, finish the book of Romans. So that's the plan, at least at the moment. So I know it's been a little out of order, and I really do appreciate your graciousness with me. But I hope if you've been here for any length of time, the study in depth in 5 through 8 has been helpful to you. Because I just think there's so much meat there that I just felt like we really need to slow down and work our way through it. So tonight what we're going to do is we're going to go back to a portion of scripture that I've taught through again a few years back in a short three-part series. is out of Psalm 42. And the reason I want to go back there is a couple-fold. First, the material is tremendously encouraging. It is just tremendously encouraging, tremendously helpful, as it deals with the, the topic of spiritual depression, which is something I think a lot of us, if not most of us, uh, maybe even all of us at some point struggle with. So I want to return to this portion of uh, the scripture because I think the material is helpful, it's re- irrelevant, and uh, we could benefit from it. And secondly, when I went through this series originally a few years back, there was some kind of technical difficulty, and, and it didn't get recorded correctly. And it's been, it was my understanding that the last sermon wasn't even recorded at all. So ever since then, I've thought, man, if I never find a little bit of time to squeeze this in and uh, work through this material, and, and then hopefully the sound room has got his thumbs up. So, man, there's a lot of pressure on you, man. Don't blow it, okay? <laughs> so I thought it would be helpful to have it recorded again just because I think it's a helpful bit of information that for us or for people that we want to share it with, all right? So that's what we're going to do. We're headed back to Psalm 42 just for a, a bit. Now, when we come to the Psalms, we realize that in essence they are the inspired prayer and praise book of Israel, uh, and uh, they, uh, the revelations of truth are not just abstract, but they're really in the terms of the human experience. Uh, truth revealed through the emotions, the desires, the sufferings of the people of God, in the circumstances in which they're going through. 
Therefore, because that's true, the book of Psalms, they've always been a great source of encouragement and solace to the people of God throughout the centuries, those in the nation of Israel and then to those in the church. Because the Psalms are able to, uh, in the Psalms, we're able to see men struggling with their problems and then struggling with themselves and then talk to themselves and their souls, analyzing their problems and encouraging themselves with the truths they already know concerning the person of God. So when you come to the book of Psalms, obviously the great highs, great lows in people's lives, real people with real issues, and they honestly evaluate their situation and honestly evaluate themselves, and then they turn to God for their answer. And that's why the Psalms are so encouraging to us. Because, again, they deal with real people with real-world issues, real-world problems to help us find our solution. And our solution comes in God and Him alone. Now, the truth is, if we look to any other source to solve our problems other than God, we're going to be disappointed. talked about that a lot recently in our study in John in the morning. Uh, The fact of what God has done for us through Christ has won for us objective peace, right? Objective peace, the war is over, hostilities have ended because of what God has done through through Christ. In that objective peace, peace with God, again, the war over, is the only thing that provides for us subjective peace. Subjective peace on, on a personal level. Peace on a personal level that Christ wants to give to us as a gift. Again, John fourteen twenty seven says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. So again, because of Christ and his finished work on the cross, uh, on our behalf, the only place that we can go to find true peace is through him. Again, what he has done through the gospel, by way of the gospel, because the gospel directs us to someone outside ourselves. The gospel directs us to someone outside ourselves rather than to something inside of us for our peace in times of desperation and times of anxiety. So my peace that Christ wants to give as a gift is something we need to take. Now let me just read through, uh, as we just kind of begin to look at the text, let me just read through it, and then we'll start working our way uh, through the material. Psalm 41 the superscription says, For the choir director, a mascal of the sons of Korah, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, and while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember and pour out my soul within me, for I used to go along with the throng and lead them. In the procession of the house of God, with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. O my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore I remember thee from the land of the Jordan, from the peaks of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep the sounds of thy waterfalls, and all thy breakers and thy waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and his song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to my rock, why hast thou forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him 
for the help of my countenance and my God. Now, I want to begin our study by giving you a little example, a little historical point of history, a little story from the life of the hymn writer William Cowper. If you're familiar with Hindity at all, you're familiar with that name. Cowper was a contemporary of John Wesley and George Whitfield. They were leaders in the evangelical revival in England. Cowper was a very close friend of John Newton, the former slave trader turned pastor and hymn writer, obviously the writer of the hymn Amazing Grace. Cowper, perhaps, is best known for his hymns, or as a hymn writer for his hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footstep in the sea, he rides upon the storm. Or for the hymn, There's a Fountain Filled with Blood. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see the fountain in his day, and there have I, though vile as he, washed all my sins away. Cowper was born in November 15th, or on November 15th, 1731, in a small town near London. He grew up in a well-to-do family, but he grew up without any relationship to Christ. His mother died when he was six. His father sent him off to boarding school, and by 18, he started apprenticing as a lawyer with a view to practice law. But by the age of 21, he sank into his first paralyzing bout of depression, the first of four major battles with depression, anxiety, despair. At the age of 28, he suffered a total mental breakdown and on at least three different occasions tried to take his own life and was placed in an asylum for a period of time. At the age of 32, his depression returned. He was incarcerated in a place called St. Albans uh, Insane Asylum. And there he met a man named uh, Nathaniel Cotton, 58-year-old man who ran the facility and tended to the patient's care. Dr. Cotton was an evangelical believer, was a lover of God, lover of the gospel. And so after about six months of, uh, into his stay, Dr. Cotton left the Bible for Cowper to find on a bench in the garden, whereby Cowper opened it up to John chapter 11 and read about Christ and his raising Lazarus from the dead. And in Cowper's own words, he said this. He said, I saw so much benevolence, mercy, goodness, sympathy with miserable man and our Savior's conduct that I almost shed tears upon the relation, thinking that it was an exact type of the mercy which Jesus was on the point of extending towards myself, I sighed and said, Oh, that I had not rejected so good a Redeemer, that I had not forfeited my ways, uh, my, had not forfeited always favors. So um, uh, Cowper at this time is an unconverted man. Uh, the word starts to make a little bit of an impression on his heart, starts to soften his heart, and, and then he begins to feel um, that he was utterly doomed. He, he turns to uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 25, says, God whom, has, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. And Cowper says this, Immediately I received the strength to believe it. And full beams of the sun of righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he made, my pardon sealed in his blood, and all the fullness and completeness of his justification. In a moment I believed and received the gospel. Whatever my friends shared with me in the past concerning the gospel revived in its, uh, all in its clearness and demonstration of the spirit and power. Unless the almighty arm had been under me, I think I should have died with gratitude and joy. My eyes filled with tears, my voice choked with 
transport, I could only look up to heaven in silent fear, overwhelmed with love and wonder. So he takes the Bible, he picks it up, and he reads this portion of Scripture out of John or out of Romans 3. And in a moment, Cowper's wonderfully converted. And so much in love with the place and so much in love with Dr. Cotton's kindness to him, he stays there in St. <clears throat> Albums for another 12 months. In June of 1765, at the age of 34, Cowper leaves St. Albums. He moves in with the family. And after about two years of being with this family, the husband tragically dies in a fall from his horse. And that would set up, uh, set the stage, as it were, for the most important influence in Cowper's life. That's when he met John Newton. Newton, of course, is the slave trader that was uh, powerfully converted to God and called into ministry. And he was the pastor of a church not far from this family's home. Newton went to visit the family and was such help to them they decided to move to the small town of Only, uh, where uh, Newton pastored in order to sit under his ministry. And that's where uh, Newton becomes Cowper's uh, pastor, his counselor, and his most uh, importantly, most importantly, his friend. Cowper saying, a sincere and more affectionate friend no man has ever had. Now, Newton saw that Cowper had a bent towards uh, the melancholy, and that he was often depressed, reclusive. So Newton drew him into ministry, into the ministry. Took him along with him as many places as he could, various uh, places he was visiting, visit, different visitations. And in these uh, long walks between homes, they would visit, they would talk about God, they would talk about God's purpose and God's purpose for his church. And, and Cowper was, was a lover of poetry. He read quite a bit of poetry and written some of his own. So in 1769, uh, Newton had a, an idea of collaborating with Cowper to write a book of hymns uh, to be sung in their church. Newton believed it would be helpful for Cowper to engage that kind of activity, to keep his mind active, and then because of his love for poetry. So Newton wrote about 208 hymns, and Cowper wrote 68. But before he could finish the project, Cowper had what he called, and I'm quoting this, the fatal dream. Quote, unquote, the fatal dream. It was another breakdown. And Cowper never really stated what the dream was, but only in the dream... A word was spoken to him that reduced him to spiritual despair. And in that dream, it was something along the lines of, it's over for you, you're lost. It's over for you, you're lost. And the writer says that the dream haunted him for 12 years. There were more attempts of suicide, and each time God providentially stepped in and prevented them. And Newton stood with him all the way and wouldn't leave his side. In 1780, Newton left only for a new pastor in Lombard Street, London. There he would serve for 27 years. But he never abandoned his friendship with Cowper. The two exchanged letters for 20 years, and Cowper pouring out his life and soul to Newton as no one else, uh, as to no one else. And here's a, kind of a small example of one of the letters written by Cowper to Newton. It was dated uh, January 13, 1784. This is Cowper. Loaded as my life is with despair, I have no such comfort as would result from a supposed probability of better things to come if it were once ended. You will tell me that this cold gloom will be succeeded by a cheerful spring and endeavor to encourage me to hope for a spiritual change resembling it, but I, it will be lost labor. Nature revives again, but the soul once slain lives no more. My friends, I now expect that I shall uh, see yet again. They think it is necessary to the existence of divine truth that he who was once had possessed it uh, of eternal life, or I should never finally lose it. 
I admit the solidarity of this reasoning in every case but my own. Why not my own? I forestall the answer. God's ways are mysterious, and he giveth no account of this matter, and an answer of that would serve my purpose as well as theirs in that use. There is a mystery of my destruction, and in time it shall be explained. That's a pretty sad letter. Now, you know that the letter, notice that the letter affirms the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, right? He doesn't even quarrel with that. He doesn't even quarrel with the reality of his own conversion at, <coughs> excuse me, St. Albums. What he disputes with is that the general truth of the Bible in the issue of salvation applies to him. Somehow he's convinced himself that he is the lone exception to the, in the universe. He, he's a, bre- a reprobate. He was once elect. Don't ask why he's the lone exception to God's divine truth, but he says, I am. God gives no account of it. I mean, it's a very sad concept. It's pretty much along the lines of, I know what the Bible says, but that doesn't apply to me. Yes, but. In 1786, Cowper again entered into a fourth deep state of depression, again trying unsuccessfully to take his life, eventually dying in 18, uh, 1800 in despair. It's a sad story. It's a classic example of how even the strongest of a believer can suffer extreme discouragement, despair, depression. And I think at times we all struggle with it. We all struggle with despair. We all get down in the dumps, as it were. We all get depressed, feel that God has forgotten us. Perhaps we'll never get back on track again with God. It's the condition the old mystics uh, accurately labeled as the dark night of the soul, so says Jim Boyce. Now, the writer of Psalm 42, he experienced that. He experienced great bouts of depression in his life. Look at verse 5. Why are you in despair, O my soul? The New English translation says, why are you depressed? The NIV says, why are you downcast? Right? Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed or in turmoil within me? Uh, verse 6, O my God, my soul is despair, in despair within me. Uh, the New English translation just simply says, I'm depressed. Verse 11, Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Like, why are you downcast? Why are you in turmoil? And while the writer of Psalm 42 experiences great bouts of depression, he also rallied his soul in the face of the mounting trials and difficulties that devastated his heart and looked to God. And in that state of dependence upon God, the psalmist found comfort that he was looking for, the comfort he needed. As Steve Lawson writes, he says, Although his discouragement was great, the consolation he received in God was greater. This psalm, Lawson says, shows all believers how to overcome their bouts of depression. It describes the upward look of a downcast soul that found peace in trusting God. So if you're somebody here tonight who uh, is overcome with great bouts of depression or great bouts of discouragement or know somebody that experiences those things at times, this psalm is for you. God left this psalm to be an encouragement for you, for your soul. Again, it describes the upward look of a downcast soul that finds its peace and trust in God. 
And again, that's always the issue for every one of us in our lives. Will we believe God? Bottom line issue, will we believe God? Will we trust what God says to be true or will we not? And the choices are really that simple. Believe what God says to be true and enjoy peace. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your heart tr- be troubled, believe, or let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Again, John fourteen twenty seven. Will we believe what God says is to be true? Now, in the psalm here, Psalm 42, it has a superscription or a title. It says, for the choir director, a maskal of the sons of Korah. The term maskal is uh, thought to mean a psalm of instruction. Uh, others have said it's a, a wise counsel about trusting God through tough times. And then it sends the, says, uh, says the sons of Korah, uh, the sons of Korah, the Korites, uh, were Levites who were descendants of a, descendants of a man named Kohath, uh, the father of Korah. You remember when Israel was wandering in the wilderness there in the desert, Korah led a rebellion, about 250 men against Moses. Uh, they perished by God's judgment. The ground opened up and swallowed them and their families alive because of their sin. It's in number 16. And these sons were spared by God's sovereign grace. So you have God's judgment tempered with mercy. These sons were spared. And it's surmised that after they received that mercy from God, they were filled with gratitude and dedicated themselves to sacred music to the glory of God that were used in the wilderness, in the, the tabernacle, and later in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, while the superscription attests the composition of the psalm to the sons of Korah, there's a con- tremendous amount of discussion amongst the commentators uh, whether or not that's actually true. Many suggest that uh, perhaps no one knows for sure who wrote the psalm or when it was written. Some have suggested the psalm was written by wicked uh, King Jehoiachin, on his way to Babylon as a prisoner of Nebuchadnezzar. Others have suggested it was written by the godly king Hezekiah. Many other uh, commentators suggest, while the psalm is attested to the sons of Korah, that David actually wrote the psalm. Now, believe it or not, that's a pretty popular view. Uh, Spurgeon held that view. He says, although David is not mentioned as the author, this psalm must be the offspring of his pen. It is so Davidic, it smells of the son of Jesse. It bears the mark of his style, experience, in every letter. We could sooner doubt the authorship of the second part of Pilgrim's Progress than question David's title to be the composer of this song. <clears throat> so again, many uh, commentators take Spurgeon's position that's written by, by David. Another position that's out there that kind of harmonizes the two possibilities, uh, as uh, some interpreters have arrived to, a conclusion that Really what happened uh, with the origin, uh, origination of this psalm uh, was that a sympathetic Levite or Korite uh, from the Korah family uh, so vividly transports himself into David's situation that he virtually writes out of the very soul of David. That seems like somewhat of a far-fetched uh, interpretation, a forced interpretation. So another possibility that's been put out there is that a Korite actually wrote the psalm and described the experience of his own and the similarity of what he lived through that psalm that David experienced as a result of the fact that that man accompanied David on the occasion of his flight from his son Absalom in 2 Samuel 15 and following. That's probably the most popular view. That's the view that's at least presented by the Old Testament scholar Dillich. That the author may have well been a prominent Levite of the Korite group and so 
uh, in, in a position of leadership that would demand by what's said in verse 4 that information there would be taken care of. So there you go, the possibilities. Psalm 42, verse 1, For the choir director, a mascal of the sons of Korah, as a deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, and when shall I come and appear before God? Now, Psalm 42 is the first uh, psalm in the second book of the five books of the Psalms, and, and an interesting uh, change occurs in the usage of the divine name, which switches the switch uh, occurs from Jehovah being the dominant name used for God in the first book, uh, 272 times, to Elohim being the denom- dominant divine name in the second book. It's used about 164 times. So Elohim is God is the creator, the omnipotent one, the all-powerful one, strong and mighty one. We're Jehovah or uh, uh, Yahweh. Uh, Jehovah is just the uh, a Latinized version of the Hebrew Yahweh. You read it a lot of times in your version, probably with L-O-R-D, all caps. And Jehovah, or Yahweh, is the self-existing one. That's the proper name of God. It's God's true name. Uh, uh, The Hebrews would not pronounce the name, the personal name of the great God of Israel. And many commentators believe that Psalm uh, 43 is a continuation or an extension of Psalm 42 because there's an off- uh, repeated refrain that occurs uh, in verse uh, 5 and verse 11 of Psalm 42 and then verse 5 of chapter 43, Psalm 43. And it's, why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Also, Psalm 43 has no heading or title, and practically all of the other Psalms in this second book have titles that indicate the circumstances in which they were written. So whether or not the two psalms were originally constituted as one or two psalms probably can't be answered with any kind of uh, measure of certainty. It seems to be the case that from the earliest manuscripts, they appeared separately, uh, for the Septuagint offers them as two distinct poems, whereas some versions of the Hebrew text, they are one. So there you go. Now the psalmist begins this psalm by looking at his own life and then reviewing the reasons for his extreme bout of discouragement. And in the midst of his despair or his severe discouragement, he longs for the presence of God and exhorts his soul to hope in God. Verse 41, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for thee, O God. Uh, Again, the, the psalm begins with a statement of intense longing. It's a time of emotional drought, a time of spiritual dryness. The Hebrew word pants means to have a keen, consuming desire for. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for thee, O God. Like a deer who's been running through the woods, the forest, the side of the hill, he desperately needs water. So the psalmist is crying out, not for people, not for possessions, not for property, but for the person of God himself. My soul pants for thee, O God. The psalmist needed God. He longed for God. Verse 2, my soul thirsts for thee, for, or for my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Not false gods of the culture, not false idols or images of the heathen. He wants the living God. He wants the one in whom a life alone belongs. He wants the one who life alone is of and of himself, the one who 
uh, only gives life, who has life. He wants the one who gives to men living water. Dead gods are a mockery. Put a little mark there, and we'll come right back to it, but turn over just, let me read part of uh, Psalm 115 together. Psalm 115. Verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to thy name give glory because of thy loving kindness, because of thy truth. Why should the nation say, where now is their God? Verse 3. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols, verse 4, are silver and gold, the works of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. The idols have mouths, but they cannot speak, which means they can't answer you. They have eyes, but cannot see, which means they can't see the worshipers before them, much less the problems and the burdens of the worshipers of these false idols. Verse 6, they have ears, but they can't hear. There again, they can't hear your prayer. They can't hear your problems. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They can't smell the incense you're burning, no matter how sweet it is, no matter how strong it might be. Verse 7, they have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. Meaning they don't have the ability to reach out and help you. They don't have the ability to stir up one step of relief for those who seek them. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Again, they can't hear you, they can't help you, they can't respond to your needs. Verse 8, those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. Now, it's bad enough when the nations were worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars. That was bad enough. But now evil men have grown and they're evil. They've grown worse and worse. Now they worship idols that they have created with their own hands from silver or gold that they, that they themselves have dug up from the earth or cut into shape from a piece of wood. Matthew Henry says, By worshiping these foolish puppets, men make themselves more and more foolish like them and set themselves at greater distance from everything that is spiritual, sinking themselves deeper in, into the mire of sin, and with all they provoke God to give them up to a reprobate mind. Those that trust in them act very absurdly and very unreasonably, are senseless, helpless, useless like them, and they will find it so themselves to their own confusion. These gods can't help. Again, verse 3 says of the living God, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Verse 11, he says, you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. Listen, he is their help. He is their shield. So again, the living God is the only help for God's people. The living God is the only source of help for God's people. Turn back to Psalm 42. As a deer pants, verse 1, as a deer pants for the water brook, so my soul thirsts for thee, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Again, it's only the true and the living God that can help. Then he says, when shall I come and appear before him? Now again, the sons of Korah were connected with the tabernacle, the temple, the rituals. They were connected to corporate worship. But the psalmist says, when shall I come and appear before him? 
Now, again, we don't know the exact situation here. We don't know exactly what's happening, but somehow the psalmist has been cut off from corporate worship. The psalmist understands that God is everywhere. The psalmist understands that God is always with him. So when he comes and says, when shall I come and appear before him? Again, he's talking about the aspect of corporate worship. And because of whatever the situation is, he's away from home. Now, if you take the position that he was with David in his flight from Absalom, that he's a long way from Jerusalem, the temple and temple worship, far from home. So he feels like because he's far from home, far from the temple, he's far from God. Again, we don't know exactly where he was or why he was there. Again, the second half of verse 6 says, Therefore I remember thee from the land of the Jordan, from the peaks of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Mizar means little hill or little mountain. And there's no known hill by that name. But the land of Jordan is the region beyond the Jordan, north and east of where Mount Hermon is. So Mizar is probably a lesser mountain in the Hermon range. So in an area that's pretty far from Jerusalem. Some writers have suggested that if a traveler or a captive, again, which uh, the author could be, were headed east in the direction of Babylon, this is the last point that they might glimpse at familiar mountains, uh, look back and might see the homeland to the south. So in any situation, the psalmist uh, is far from home. He's feeling like he's cut off from God. He feels like God is not with him. He feels alienated. And again, if the psalm was written by the sons of Korah who were dedicated to performing worship in the temple, as Jim Boyce suggests, uh, not only has the author's forced absence from Jerusalem got him discouraged, but he's also absent from his work. Therefore, his sense of being useful is gone, along with his whole purpose for living. And perhaps somebody in the room can relate to that, right? You find yourself in a situation of feeling alienated, feeling cut off. Maybe you lost your job. Maybe you were forced to retire, and you've kind of lost your meaning and purpose in life. At least to some extent, your meaning and purpose in life is lost. You find yourself depressed, discouraged. You're growing old. Your body's failing you. And perhaps you feel like your sense of usefulness is over. It's done. Maybe that's part of what's going on here. But I think there's more. I think there's something specific, and I alluded to it earlier. Again, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Again, there's this longing for this deep, personal, intimate relationship with God. And along with that, I don't think you can overlook the corporate worship, the corporate aspect of what's going on here. When the psalmist would come and appear before God in the context, he's talking about temple worship, corporate fellowship with God's people. He's gone, he's out of Jerusalem someplace, and he misses that. And that depresses him. And that's pretty sad in the day in which we live. Because we have many people who profess to know the name of Christ, but they don't have a problem whatsoever if they're absent from corporate worship. Sound harsh? It's true. Many people who profess Christ who don't seem to have a problem whatsoever if they're absent from corporate worship. They have many excuses for themselves, whether it be economic excuses because of the economic pressures they feel they have to work two jobs, and they might, I don't know, they're busy, tired, 
Too busy, too tired to meet regularly with the people of God on the Lord's day. Maybe the morning. But more likely not the evening. Because they need time to quote-unquote decompress. They need some time to quote-unquote relax before the work week begins again. John Phillips, in his commentary, asked this striking question. He says, is it that we have gone too far into worldliness? Where our, where our fathers saw the world as a battleground, we see it as a playground. Where they went out to engage the world as a foe, we go out and embrace the world as a friend. We have its pleasures piped into our homes, and we become so seduced by the world, we excuse ourselves from gathering together of God's people. No wonder, he says, the Holy Spirit warns us, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as a manner of some, and so much more as you see the day approaching. He warns expressly that the last days will come equipped with special spiritual perils for the saints of God, not of least which is absence from the gathering of God's people. Now, obviously, you're the exception to the rule because because you're here, and I I honestly appreciate that, but how many people just don't come for whatever reason? Not Not so the psalmist. He loved meeting together with God's people. And when he was cut off from that regular attendance, it grieved his heart. He's panting for the person of God, the things of God. He wants God to be worshipped. He wants God to be loved, adored, because God is worthy of that worship. And he wants to be a part of it, not just on a personal level, but he wants to be a part of it on a corporate level. He wants to be a part of that corporate process. And he's discouraged and depressed because he's not there. So the psalmist is feeling God's, uh, is having a longing for God's felt presence and a deeper personal awareness of God. And again, he's suffering loneliness and alienation uh, because of his absence from public worship in the temple there in Jerusalem. And then on top of that, the psalmist is fighting discouragement and depression from the taunts he's receiving from unbelievers around him. Verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night. Well, they say to me all day long, where is your God? You see the same kind of attack down in verse 10. As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? They say to me all day long, where is your God? So the psalmist is saying that uh, his enemies, the unbelievers, they're taunting him. And they're encouraging him to fear. They're encouraging him to be despondent about a God and his character. The psalmist already finds himself discouraged. Now his enemies are asking, where's your God? Where's your God when you need him? Where's your God now? Why doesn't he seem to care about you? Why doesn't he hear your cries? So you're discouraged, or the psalmist is discouraged, and whatever the cause, you certainly at this point don't need your quote-unquote friends to come along and help encourage you anymore into this direction, right? Maybe you understand the picture, I don't know. I know for me, when I'm discouraged, depressed, it's a very short walk. My wife hears this all the time. I, it's a very short walk from the sea of despair to the slew of despond, right? Or vice versa, right? I, I don't need help to get there. 
psalmist is there and he's got people around him, enemies that are relentlessly attacking him, taunting him, overwhelming him, and saying that taunt overwhelms him. He says, verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night. He's such a, in such a desperate situation, but this uh, opposition is causing him so much sorrow he can't even eat. One translation, one translator actually puts it like this, instead of eating, I weep. Instead of eating, I weep. Verse 10, he says, As the shouting of my bones, my adversaries revile me. So the emotional agony is causing physical pain in his, uh, by these relentless personal attacks of his foes, really. Literally, the text reads, In murder, my, in, in murder in my bones. In murder in my bones. Verse 10, the King James says, As a sword in my bones. NIV, my bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me saying to me all day long, where's your God? Now again, we don't know the exact situation, and we don't know what's brought the psalmist to this point of despair. Maybe the psalmist was with with David when uh, David is fleeing Absalom. You might remember that coward of a man, Shimei, who uh, mocked David and taunted him, threw rocks at him, dirt at him, and accused David of being a bloody man, and God was punishing him for supplanting Saul in his house. I think it was Spurgeon who said, cruel taunts come naturally from cowardly minds. And that's the wicked men. The enemy of the psalmist claiming that God has departed from him. That God has abandoned him. The 17th century commentator John Trapp says, other of God's suffering saints have met like with like measure. At Orleans in France, as the bloodied papist murdered the Protestants, they cried out, Where is your God? What has become of all your prayers and psalms now? Let your God that you called upon save you now if he can. Isn't that the same kind of words that the Lord Jesus Christ heard of when he was hanging there on the cross to the mocking and the jeers of the crowd? Let's see if God, if if he's really God's son, if he's God's son, maybe God will come rescue him. Where is your God? Matthew Henry adds, those who are mistaken who think, or those are mistaken who think when they have robbed us of our Bibles and our ministries, or our ministers uh, and our solemn assemblies, they have robbed us of our God. For though God has not tied us to them when they are to be had, he has not tied himself to them um, when they are to be had. He has not tied himself to them. We know where our God is and where to find him. Wherever we are, there's always a way open heavenward. God hasn't left us. That's what Matthew Henry is saying. God has promised to never what? Leave us or forsake us. He's promised to always be with us, even to the end of the age. The question is, will we believe what God says to be true? They say to me all day long, where's your God? Spurgeon adds this, he says... The wicked know that our worst misfortunes would be to lose God's favor. Hence, their diabolical malice leads them to declare that such is the case. Glory be to God, he says, that they lie in their throats. For our God is in the heavens and in the furnace also, succoring or giving help to his people in the furnace also. I think he's referring to Daniel and his friends, right? Now, as the psalmist reflects on his present condition, again, the discouragement of his soul, 
his mind is drawn to remember the past, the positive past. Look at verse 4. These things I remember and pour out my soul within me, for I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession into the house of God with a voice of joy and thanksgiving and multitude-keeping festival. So again, his present circumstances, whatever they may be, have made him greatly discouraged. So therefore, he remembers the better days. And that's an important encouragement point to mark down somewhere in your notes, the proper use of memory. The proper use of memory when we're depressed and discouraged. To stop and think about God and what God has done in his past acts and goodness and his encouragement to us. So when you find yourself in times when you're depressed and discouraged, it makes no sense to continue down that path to fuel the fire of discouragement, so to speak. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way, remind yourself of God, who God is and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. Now, that's a pretty encouraging statement, right? Instead of muttering in depressed, unhappy way, Remind yourself of God, who God is, what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. That's a proper use of memory. Remember God. So listen, in times of discouragement, here it is, we can choose, we can choose, to continue down the path of discouragement or we can remember back and think of the good things of the happier times the things that God has done who God is and that's a personal choice that we each make again look at the psalmist I'll read out of the ESV he says these things I remember I choose to call these things to my mind as I pour out my soul how will I go with the how I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession of the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise. I remember corporate worship. I remember getting together and singing great hymns. I remember shouts of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. So the psalmist says, look, in my moment of despair, in my time of despair, discouragement, I'm going to choose to remember the best of times when I worship together with other believers. In the midst of discouragement and depression, despondency, the psalmist stops and he questions himself. Then he speaks to his own soul, his own heart. Verse 5, Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. So again, why are you in despair, O my soul? The, the, oh, my Why are you in despair, O my soul? The psalmist is speaking to his own heart. He's challenging himself. Examine himself. It's a time of introspection. Time of self-contemplation. Again, challenging his thinking. And I think that is a hugely important point. Right use of memory. And this hugely important point here, you'll notice that the psalmist is not surrendered to his feelings of spiritual depression. He's not surrendered to his feelings of spiritual depression or spiritual discouragement. And he challenges himself. Why? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? 
So again, he's challenging himself, <clears throat> questioning himself. What's the reason? Why? Now again, I've already alluded to some of the <clears throat> situations the psalmist might find himself in or might be going through. Again, he's cut off from corporate worship. He feels like he's been cut off, therefore, from the very presence of God. He's got wicked people all around him taunting him. Unbelievers questioning God and his goodness and his own presence or God's presence in his own life. And whatever the situation <clears throat> is for the psalmist and whatever it is for us, there could be a variety of different reasons for us to be discouraged. The very first step in dealing with discouragement or depression is once you recognize it, you confront it. You confront it. You confront it yourself. You talk to yourself. And you ask yourself why you're depressed. So again, the first step is you admit the fact you're depressed, and then the psalmist really admits that not only to himself, but he admits it to God. He's in despair. You see it in verses 5, 6, and 11. But then he asks the question, why are you in despair, O my soul? The Hebrew word for despair means to be bowed down or prostrated. We might say laid low. I'm in the pits. I'm down in the dump. Discouraged. Again, depressed. Verse 4, it says, I'm pouring out my soul within me. Again, he's lost his appetite. His, he's in tears. He's emotionally drained. Uh, verse 7, he talks about being overwhelmed as a flood. Depressed. Physically, he's being affected, or his physical body's being affected. He's got these feelings in his bones like they're being shattered. Uh, again, verse uh, 10, and he's not eating. And we know there's physical symptoms that often associate themselves with depression, headaches, digestive disorders, chronic pain, sense of hopelessness, anxiousness. He's feeling abandoned by God and even perhaps rejected by God. He knows the truth. He goes, he knows the truth that God has promised never to leave him or forsake him. He knows that reality. He knows that he's been commanded not to be anxious for anything, but he is. And that adds to his discouragement. That adds to his feelings of guilt, to his feelings of rejection. And on top of that, he's tired. Depressed people often feel fatigued. They lose motivation to do anything. They have a hard time concentrating. Problems sleeping. And thoughts of discouragement fill their minds, and for some people, even thoughts of suicide. Now, again, there are all a variety of different kinds of situations that can cause depression, but once you realize the fact that you are there in that state, you have to confront yourself. And that's exactly what the psalmist does. Confront yourself and ask yourself why. Why are you depressed? Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Or why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed? He admits the issue, confronts the issue, and then he makes a command. He commands his own soul. So the contemplation of his condition causes him to command his own soul. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Here it is, hope in God. That's the command. That's the hope for spiritual depression, the cure for despair. When we are distraught spiritually, we have to talk to ourselves. And then we have to command ourselves hope in God. 
Put your hope in the sovereign God, in the everlasting God, in the unchangeable God, in the God who's loved you before time began, in the God who's promised to never leave you or forsake you. Hope in him. Hope in the one who's promised to take you to glory. Hope in the one who's promised to conform you to the image of his very own son. Hope in the one who's now presently dwelling within you through the person of the Holy Spirit. Hope in the one who's promised to work all things together in your life for your good. Hope in him. So the, the, the psalmist commands his soul. He commands his own heart to look away from the circumstances that have brought him to this position where he's laid low or cast down. And he commands himself to look up. Hope in God. is the very same command you see Paul speaking of in Colossians 3.1. He says, If then you've been raised up with Christ, keep, thinking, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. And I'm going to say something that I don't mean it to be unkind because it's, it's immensely truthful and I say it out of love. One of the greatest cures for spiritual depression is to realize that we are not victims. We're not victims and we're most certainly not hopeless. Hope in God. Exercise your ability to take control of your life and then Act. Write this reference down. You can look at it later and then think about it, but write this down, Lamentations 3.21. Lamentations 3.21. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. Again, this is Jeremiah speaking. It's a time of great difficulty for his nation. He says, this is what I'm going to do with a great intentionality. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Verse 22, Lamentations 3, verse 22, The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he, sit, he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. So in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of discouragement, depression, we have to remind ourselves what we know to be true. We have to remind ourselves to what we know to be true about the person of God. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Because of the Lord's mercies, we're not consumed. His compassions never fail. Hope in God. So the psalmist commands his heart. Commands his soul, and this again is in part a large portion of the cure, if you will, for spiritual depression. Listen to these words from Martin Lloyd-Jones out of his book called Spiritual Depression, Causes and Cures, which I highly recommend and have handed out a few copies. Lloyd-Jones says, have you not realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You've not organized them, but they start talking to you. They bring back problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who's talking to you? He says, you yourself is talking to you. 
Now this man, referring to the psalmist, this man's treatment was this. Instead of allowing self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. The main art, Lloyd John says, in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you downcast? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, abrade yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God. Instead of muttering in a depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that, end on a great note, defy yourself, defy other people, defy the devil and the whole world, and say with this man, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance, who is although who, who is also the health of my countenance and my God, right? Isn't that good? I shall yet praise him. I don't care what self is saying to me. I don't care what the devil is saying to me. I don't care what people around me are saying to me. I'm going to praise God. It's a choice. So again, if you want to put yourself out of spiritual depression or discouragement, with intentionality, start speaking to yourself. Truthfully, positively. You take charge of your thinking. You take charge of your feelings. You don't allow your feelings to overrule your heart and your mind. Again, you look at the intentional decision the psalmist makes. After questioning himself, he commands his soul, Why are you in despair? Verse 5. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. It's intentionality. It's purposeful turning away from self, from problems, from circumstances, from the situation, and turning to God and intentionally praising God. So when we go through some kind of trial or tribulation... Self-pity will very helpful, very willingly help you walk from the slew of despond to the sea of despair. Because self-pity is the common cause for depression and the common reaction when we suffer a loss of any kind. But instead of focusing on self, instead of focusing on the problem, the psalmist says, listen to these words, for I shall... For I shall again praise him. It's a choice. And there's freedom again in making that choice. There's freedom again in realizing you are not a victim. We all have choices. None of us are responsible necessarily for all the circumstances that we go through in life, but we are responsible for how we respond to those circumstances. I shall yet again praise him. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. So again, when you find yourself being discouraged, depressed, without hope, you turn from your circumstances and you look up. Hope in God, you praise him, you thank him. And you thank him, listen to what he says, for the help of his presence. For I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance, it says in the uh, King James countenance, presence. Literally, it's the word face. The NIV says it like this, put your hope in God for I will praise him, my Savior and my God. 
I shall praise him for the help of his countenance. I shall praise him for his presence. Again, it's an acknowledgement of the fact that God is always with us. So again, in spite of whatever the circumstances are, the psalmist makes the choice to place his hope in God. Therefore, praise flows from that truth that God is both his Savior, his God, who is always present with him. So relief from depression is found in trusting the one who never changes, the immutable God. Relief from depression is found in believing the truth of what God says and then acting upon that truth. We have to be careful about feelings. We're in a feelings-oriented culture, and we need to develop, in in the words of another, we need to develop a biblical theology of emotions and weigh the world's counsel by the Scripture. As many believers are defeated by depression and other negative emotions because they have not sought a biblical approach to dealing with their problems. First Timothy 4, 7 says, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And when you use that word discipline, it really means going against or defying your feelings, your emotions. You might not feel like exercising, but it might be beneficial, right? And if you're disciplined, you do it. You might not feel like uh, uh, spending, or you might feel like spending money impulsively, but if you're disciplined, it might be best to learn to live within a budget, right? Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. One commentator says this, a consistently depressed Christian is a lousy advertisement for the Lord and his salvation. So we must confront our depression and bring it under control of the Holy Spirit. When we think rightly and accurately, our depression will be replaced by genuine joy in the Lord. So the first step when you're depressed is to recognize it and begin to confront yourself as to the reason why. Again, why are you depressed, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the health of his presence. So whenever we find ourselves in these kind of difficult situations, whenever we find ourselves discouraged and depressed, uh, despair, depressed, we need to hope in God. We need to listen to the wise counsel of the psalmist. Trust the Lord. Steve Lawson says this. He says, This may sound too simplistic in man's eyes, but it is nevertheless heaven's solution. But unfortunately, when we're confronted with encroaching trials, we are tempted to panic and turn to man-made solutions. These never release us from pain. Some people turn to their work or to a hobby to get them through. Others turn to new purchases or new pursuits to numb their sorrow. Still others turn to bottles or drugs to ease the pain, only to multiply their agony all the more. Lasting peace, he says, and genuine contentment are found only in one place, hope in God. We must discipline our minds and direct our wills to hold on to God when tempted to dissolve into a pool of despair. Hope in God. Nothing else and no one else can pull us out of the depressing moments of life. All right, part one. Our Father and our God, we're so thankful for this great encouragement that the psalmist, through your desire, gives to us. 
that in times of difficulty, we need to look up. We need to put our hope in you. We need to stop listening to ourselves, start talking to ourselves, and start believing what you say to be true. And then we need to remind ourselves of those truths. Remind ourselves of who you are, what you've done, what you promised, and then to hold on to that truth. Because your word is truth. And your word of truth triumphs our feelings. So we thank you for that reality. We thank you for your unchanging character. We thank you that you are the rock that we can stand on, who's with us through all the storms of life. Thank you for the reality of the fact you've loved us in eternity past, you love us in time, and you've promised to love us into eternity future. So help us to believe that. Help us to place our hope in you, to not look at our circumstances, but to look in you and with intentionality praise you, worship you, turn away from self and self-pity, have our hearts, fo- our hearts focus completely upon you, the one who's promised to never leave us or forsake us, the one who rescues the downcast. Help us to remember your faithfulness, and may we worship you always in all situations. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.